Josie DeVidio is a woman on a mission to explore the human experience. With a passion to bring entertaining and informative content to your ears, real talk, real people, this is Josieology. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Josieology. I know that I have been reaching out on social media asking the Josieologists if they wanted me to continue on this season, this holiday time, or wait till January to launch season two. So it seems that everybody's waiting for January for season two to launch as things get busy now in the holiday season, except I could not wait to bring you this episode today. Today, I'm chatting with Lori Budd, who is half of the ownership of Dracaena Winery. And we're going to be talking today about picking wines and everything we've ever wanted to know about wines. And I thought it would be the perfect episode for you all to have handy as you go into your holiday season and need to pick wines for your parties, for uh, hostess gifts, and um, pretty much it's just going to be all things wine today. So thank you for joining me, Lori. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Josie. And, you know, all things wine is always good. (laughs) Right. There's never a bad time to talk about wine. So just for grins and giggles, I am recording with a glass of Dracaena Wines Cabernet Franc Reserve, the 2016 vintage, right? Yeah. And I'm not going to lie, it's delicious. And I think I should record all of my episodes with a glass of wine moving forward because it's fabulous. I like that. You know, it's, I don't record without one in hand. So I think it's a good tradition to start for you. Yes. Lori has a podcast called Exploring the Wine Glass. Yes. Where she's talking all about wines with guests and they are enjoying a glass of wine together while they do it just so they have something to, you know, taste and compare notes with. And I thought, what a brilliant idea. I totally want to do that when I have Lori on Josiology. So that is what we're doing today. I am having a glass, as I said, of the Cabernet Franc Reserve, which I learned from Lori. Cabernet Franc is like the dad of Cabernet Sauvignon, right? You are correct. Yes. I'm Italian. I've been drinking wine for a long time and I find it so fascinating every time I learn something new. So that was like my latest cool fun fact to learn about wine. So today we're going to get all kinds of tips so that we can be ready for Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year. Because I know a lot of listeners, when they go to pick their wines for these parties or even just to serve in their own homes um, with their dinners, they tend to pick the things that they like over and over again, which is great, but they're a little afraid to pick something new because, you know, you don't want to spend money on something that you end up not liking. So we're going to give you guys some hints today about what you should be looking for when you pick your wines. But before we go there, I wanted to talk to Lori a little bit about how she ended up in the wine business. So my husband and I met at work. Uh, he was a food scientist and I was a microbiologist. And I joke with him all the time that my job was much more important because all he did was create the food that people ate, but he had to pass it through me before it was allowed to go out on the shelf because I made sure that it was safe and that he didn't kill anybody with the food. <laughs> so I, I truly believe the microbiologist is much more important than the food scientist. Of course, he will you know, debate that to the end of time. But when we met, we started dating and we were, you know, low on the totem pole of of salary and we couldn't afford to go out to dinner all the time. I mean, well, we still can't afford to go out to dinner all the time, <laughs> but uh, we were young, didn't really know what to do. So we would just walk to a local wine shop and we would pick a wine by the label. 
Now that's like myth number one of wine loving. It's okay to pick a wine by the label. Sometimes it's a great wine. Sometimes it's not a great wine, but it's always fun to try, you know? Right. So pick a wine by the label. And as we progressed in our careers and we started evolving our palate a little bit, we started realizing that there was a little difference. You know, there's a difference between what we call bottom shelf liquor, you know, and the topper shelf. And, um, you know, those wines that are right at eye level, those are the prime ones. And we just fell in love with wine and we would just go on vacations and we found out that our vacation started to focus around wine regions and everything we did was about wine. And we started making uh, at a make wine with us place. We made wine. And what we did was we trucked grapes from Lodi, California to New Jersey. And as we were making the wine, everybody else is there drinking and partying and taking their grapes and just dumping them in. And Mike and I are sitting there sorting out the MOG. And MOG is M-O-G, and it stands for materials other than grapes. So we would pick out the leaves. We'd pick out the stems. If there was grapes that had mold on it, we were picking them out. And then as we go through the winemaking process, we were very actively involved in it where the others might have just let it go kind of. And then at the end of the year, you have a party and everybody's like, gosh, why is your wine so much better than our wine? It came from the same place. We're like, well, A, ours doesn't have mold in it, you know. Um, (laughs) Right. So that was the first step. Then we realized that, you know, trucking grapes across country is a little difficult. So uh, we then went to a custom crush facility in San Francisco called Crush Pad, and we made wine there for a year, and we got some fantastic fruit, and the wine was amazing, and everybody kept telling us, you should do this, you should do this, and then, you know, we're like, stupid, yeah, we should do this, we should do this. (laughs) So we just decided this is what we were going to do, and finally, in 2013, we were at the kitchen table having dinner. And we were like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to start it this year so that the winery has time to progress while we both still have full-time jobs. And this is what we're going to do. This is going to be our retirement. This is our passion. This is what we want. And that's what we did. We started in 2013. I remember that dinner table precisely. We were figuring out what our names were going to be, how we were going to go about doing it. And we jumped in with both feet and haven't looked back since. And here we are. So I think it's a cool story about taking, you know, an idea from like dream to reality. And that's really what I wanted to talk to you about, because I think a lot of my listeners have these like fantasy ideas of like, oh, that would be so cool if I can do that. And for me, you're the person that actually did it, you know, like you're living it. So that's fantastic. Now you mentioned, you know, you live in New Jersey right now. Right. And you mentioned going to San Francisco to do this crush pad, making your wine. So is this like at that time, was it like a hobby? Like, hey, instead of going to Florida this winter, let's go to San Francisco and make wine. Like, how does that all pan out? The way it worked with crush pad was it is a custom crush facility. So what that means is that basically somebody else is making the wine for you. So we purchase the fruit, we purchase the barrel, we, you know, we purchase all that we need to purchase. And then you have a fee for these people to basically make the wine for you. At that point, we were not a legal winery. 
So we could not officially sell our wine. We didn't have to have our label approved. We didn't have to do anything like that because it was basically for us. So at that point, yes, it was a hobby. So we did one barrel, 50 cases, and you can talk to the winemaker there. You know, they have, Crushpad had a white winemaker and a red winemaker and probably a bubble winemaker, I don't know. And, you know, you were dealing with that person but they really were there. They were the ones there. So we were in New Jersey. The analytics of the wine were being sent to us and we were saying, well, let's do this or let's do that. But the person, there was somebody out there doing that for us. Well, and that's something I don't think people understand is that wine is very scientific. I mean, they really, um, you know, I've been on several wine tours up in the Napa Valley and Sonoma and Healdsburg, that area. And it always fascinates me that you really do need to be like a, like a grape scientist to make really good wine. And it's artistic. You know, there's a fine art. You have to have a certain taste for things and know what's going to match with what um, when you develop these wines. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. So there is a lot of organic chemistry in winemaking. And I laugh. I laugh all the time because organic chemistry was not my friend in college. I spent every day in my professor's office going, I don't understand this. I don't understand this. <laughs> and uh, it, it was a horrible class for me. But on the other side, my husband loved organic chemistry. It was like his favorite class. But Mike is a chemist. I'm a biologist. It's right and left brains. Right. But when we decided to do the winery, we decided, you know, we're going to do this right. We both are very science oriented. We know this, we know how things work, but not in relation to grapes and not in relation to making wine. So we actually went back to school. So I have two master's degrees. My husband has a mat one master's degree and we went back to school to UC Davis for a third degree in winemaking. You know, it was all chemistry. It was biology. We were studying the dirt. We were studying all that. And it was all very related to growing grapes and understanding the science of grapes and those acids and things like that. Thankfully, there were the parts of organic chemistry that I really, really despise that I couldn't understand, like the chairs and all that, which I won't go into. That's not part of this. So, you know, thank goodness. But the, the acids and things like that are very much involved in this. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So are you doing the schooling when like, have you already purchased a winery and then go to school? Or are you going to school? Like, are you hedging your bets? I'm assuming you, if you went to Davis, you would have had to leave New Jersey to go to Davis. It was, we did it at the same time. So we started the winery. We decided to start the winery in 2013, but you're not getting fruit until October of 2013. So we started, I think we LLC'd or incorporated whatever we are, January 3rd. Mm -hmm. And we got the fruit in October. So we had started the winery right then and there in January and it, uh, I'm sorry, started school right then and there in January. And then we continued through for the two years that it took us to go through the program. Wow. Now, how do you decide to buy a, a winery? Like, is there a real estate agent for that? Is there <laughs> like, you know, is that in like want ads? Like want it. I want a winery. How do you go about finding a winery to buy? Okay. So here's another I guess, misunderstood concept in the wine world to uh, people not in the wine world. There are two very different things. There are wineries and there are vineyards. So if you are a vineyard, 
that means you own your own fruit. You're growing your own fruit. So you can be a vineyard and not a winery. There's loads of people who grow grapes and don't make a drop of wine. Then there's wineries. Wineries are people who are licensed to make wine. So you can be a winery and not own a vineyard. That's us. We do not own a vineyard. We own the winery. We source our fruit from very specific vineyards that we have a a fantastic relationship with and a contract with. And that's how we get our fruit. Mike and I do not want to be growers. We are, we are true believers that if you, you know, um, you know, a jack of all is a master of none and we want to be master winemakers. We contract with people who are master vineyard owners, master, you know, farmers. Right. And that to us makes the best wine. And I guess we're doing something right with the 90 plus ratings, every vintage. So (laughs) yeah. And I can tell you again, as I'm sipping this, as you're talking, I'm not saying anything because I'm just letting you talk so I can sip my wine, but it's delicious. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So what you're saying is you guys source your grapes and then you guys do the hard part, which is making the wine and making it taste good. Um, And that is a common misconception because, you know, when you go wine tasting up in the Napa Valley area, you do tend to go to wineries that have vineyards on the property and they look pretty and all of that. But just because you have a vineyard doesn't mean you have a winery because you might just be selling your grapes, selling your crops to people who know how to make wine is what you're clarifying for us. Correct. And so you can have, be a vineyard owner, you could be a winery owner, or you could have them both. And if you have them both, that is a legally recognized term. So if you're looking at a bottle of wine and it says a state on it in the United States, it says a state, that means that that winery is using their fruit from that vineyard that they personally own. Got it. The other confusing thing is that it doesn't necessarily need to be on the premise of the winery. So there are lots of wineries who own vineyards in different areas. I can still call it a state fruit as long as I own that vineyard. It doesn't need to be on the site of the winery. All right. That's good to know. I didn't realize that. So did you guys start your own winery from scratch or did you buy an existing one and and flip it? No, we started straight from scratch. Uh, We sat at the kitchen table. We decided this is what we're going to do. We wanted to name it our Weimar honor, Draco, who was named after the constellation of all of the dragon souls. He was our child. He was our everything. He was our world. And we had him for 14 amazing years, which is fantastic for a Weimar honor. And that is actually him on the label. That is an actual drawing from my best friend on that label. And this is a drawing. That is a drawing. She drew that Wow. It's a beautiful label, honestly. Thank you. And what's even more impressive about my best friend is that she never got to meet Draco. I had Draco in a stands outside and I walked around him with old school film. I walked around him taking pictures of him at different angles and I sent her the roll of film and she drew that. Wow. So that was that she's so talented. But we wanted the winery to be named after him. And 
you can't use anything Constellation because there's a big company called Constellation Brands. Mm. And it's not worth it for us to try to create a brand with that Constellation name and then them decide down the road they're going to come after us. Right. So we had to come up with something different. So when we lost Draco when he was 14, I didn't do well. I like, sure. you know, curled up, cried, shut the world down, you know, everything. Uh, I still could do that on any given day. Sure, sure. <laughs> and, uh, but what we did was my husband bought me a Dracaena tree that we put in his spot. And the Dracaena tree is actually, it's a Dracaena Draco. So that's the genus name oh. for a Draco tree. So if you look at the label, there's an outline of yes. a tree in the background. That is a Dracaena tree. You know, I'm going to put a photo of us doing this show on the Josiology podcast private Facebook group. So uh, you can see the label in that photo. So if you want to check that out, uh, you should join us in the private Facebook group. You'll need a password to get in. Um, so let's just make it wine. That's easy to remember. Wine as the password to get in to the Josiology podcast private Facebook group and you'll see the label there. It's a really uh, beautiful label. Thank you. So you named it Dracina. That was a, a good workaround. Thank you. We wanted something that not only represented him, but represented us as being science geeks because we really are science geeks. Now, you mentioned a little while ago that you guys are getting 90 point ratings. And that's something that I've never really understood. And I drink a lot of wine. So I'm assuming that most people don't really get that concept. So if you can explain that to us, that'd be helpful. Absolutely. So there was a gentleman uh, by the name of Robert Parker. Many of us would like to say he who goes by, you know, whatever the Harry Potter is, he who shall not be named. Yeah. <laughs> he kind of changed the world of wine when he decided to start rating wines on a scale of zero to 100. Not that I've ever seen a wine at zero. I've never even seen a wine at under 70. Mm -hmm. But he decided he was going to rate these wines and he became a huge influencer in terms of how you rate wine. You know, before it, people are just like, yeah, this is good, you know. But he really came in and he started doing these points. And points are wonderful. They're also horrible because what I deem as a 90 is not what you deem as a 90. Right. Because your palate is very different than mine. So what Robert Parker deems as a 90 is different than what Matt Ketman deems as a 90. So there is a lot of confusion on the points. And we've submitted our wines to two different places and have received two completely different scores. So that just shows it's the same wine, it's the same vintage, but people are rating it different. My best advice for somebody who doesn't really understand the points is to go out and explore and see who's rating them. And then you have to taste it. And if you like it, but that person who gave it points didn't like it, that's okay. But if you find somebody who rated it a score that they liked and you like it, that's who you should start following. Oh. Okay, because now their palate is similar to your palate. Right. That's a now, good point. Thank you for, you know, he who shall not be named, my palate is different than his palate, big yeah. time. So we actually would joke that if he gave a score of like a 95 or a 96 to a wine, we wouldn't buy that wine. Yeah. Because if he thinks it's a 95 or a 96, we're not going to agree with that because our palates are very different. 
the most important part about following points is that you find somebody who is attuned to what you like. Excellent point. Lori, when we come back, I want to give our listeners some pointers about what they should be looking for when they're buying wines for their upcoming holiday parties. Excellent. Hey, friends, check this out. Dracaena Winery in Paso Robles, California, would like to offer Josiologists, that's you, by the way, a 15% discount off of your first purchase. Simply go to DracaenaWines.com and use the promo code Josiology at checkout. If you love their wines as much as I do, you may even want to join their wine club for additional savings. And you can learn more about that on their website as well. Check this episode's show notes either on your phone's podcast app or at josiology.com for the link to Dracina's website. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about their delicious wines on Josiology. This holiday season, eat, drink, be merry, but of course, do it responsibly. And don't forget to stay tuned for season two because that launches in January. Happy holidays, everyone. Looking forward to season two. So Lori, we were just talking about the point system. So once you find a wine reviewer who likes the same wines that you like or rates them higher, then you know that their palate is attuned to yours. And that's the guy you should be following or lady for that matter. Correct. (laughs) And I think that's really profound because years ago... When I was, uh, how old was I? Well, I I was at least 21, but I was, you know, like college age. And I took a wine tasting class that was taught by the guy who chose the wines that were going to be sold at Trader Joe's. And in that class, we tasted every week, we tasted, I don't know, like eight wines. I mean, it was a great class. I should go back to that class. (laughs) But anyway, in that class, we always had students asking questions like, you know, we would taste something. Oh, do you like it? Not like it? What do you like about it? What don't you like about it? Here's what food would pair good with this. And people would ask things like, well, how much is it? Well, how much is this bottle? Well, how much is this bottle? And he started to get the sense that people were choosing wines based on how much it was, not what tasted good. So I'll never forget what he said. He said, it doesn't matter how much the wine is. What matters is if you like it. And if you love it and it's only $3.99, then that's perfect. And if you love it and it's like $89, then fine. But you should never choose wine based on how much it is. It just really depends on what you like to drink. What are your thoughts on that? I agree 100% with that concept that there are bottles of wine that I have had and that I purchased repeatedly. There is a Chianti Classico Reserva that is $10 a bottle. And I will buy that wine by the caseload because it's a great bottle of wine. And it's $10. Like, right. And that's the wine I'm going to drink whenever I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to pop open a bottle. And that's the bottle I'm going to pop open. And if I'm having a party and I have a whole bunch of people coming over, that's the wine I'm going to s- start serving because I have faith that a large amount of people are going to like that wine. I've had bottles of wine that were $200 a bottle and didn't like them. So it's completely whatever you like. And I just came back from a pouring event in New Hampshire and I was up on stage and they basically asked me the same thing. How do you determine what wine you like? That was their question. And I'm like, you drink it. Right. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> you, you drink it. 
And they're like, no, no, no. But before you buy it. And I'm like, the best way to learn whether or not you like a bottle of wine is to pour it in your glass. And I get that some people aren't willing, you know, it's a little scary to pay $30 or $40 for a bottle of wine that you have never tried, but you may love it. And that may be the best wine that you've ever had in your life. And on the other realm, you may be buying that, you know, label that's got the little kangaroo on it that gets ripped apart in the wine industry. But if that's what you like, more power to you. If you can enjoy your night with a $5 monster bottle, more power to you. That's what I say. <laughs> I know. It's it's funny because, um, you know, I'm Italian. And so growing up, we, there was always wine around. And my dad to this day will go buy the Italian jug of Carlo Rossi and just plop it on his table. And I'm like, dad, you should just buy nicer wines. And he's like, why? I like this one. So I'm like, okay. You like it. Why am I trying to change you? He's a wise man. Right. You like it, drink it. What do I care? Why am I trying to get all involved? (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, that's why I love the tagline of your podcast. It's, you know, I'll never tell you what to drink. But I'll always share what's in my glass. (laughs) Yes. I love that. Thank you. I think that's really wise because it makes it um, accessible to everyone. Yes. Because it is. It's kind of like, it's like any food, you know, or like chocolate. Like some people like Hershey's and some people like Godiva and some people like white chocolate. And, you know, there's huge dark chocolate fans. Everyone has their thing and not one has to be better than the other. So if you have a wine that you like, you know, for a long time that what's nicknamed as two buck chuck was like right. a big deal. I don't know if it still is. I think it's three buck chuck now. Three buck, yeah. <laughs> it's three buck. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and people loved it and I tried it. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't like my flavor. But, you know, if that's what you like, why not drink whatever you like, no matter what price it is? I agree. And that is actually one of the reasons why we don't put tasting notes. We purposely don't put tasting notes on our bottles of wine. Now we have text sheets on our website that if you want to know the chemistry of the wine, because there are some people who want to know that, if they want to know what we get on our palate for the wine, then they can go to our website and they can download the text sheet. But the thing that I don't like when wineries put the tasting notes on the back of the bottle is that once you read it, you cannot taste anything else. Right. If I read there's blueberries in this wine, I am going to taste blueberries. That's what your brain does to you. Right. Well, that's marketing. Right. So even if I am, if I have a bottle of wine that has the tasting notes on the back, I refuse to read them until I do my own tasting notes because I don't want to be influenced by what they are saying they taste. There's been times that, all right, I agree with what you're tasting, but there's been times that I am like, are you kidding me? That's not even close to what my palate says. And it doesn't mean it's a good wine or a bad wine. It's just not what my palate says. So we purposely don't put the tasting notes on there, but some people like that. It's like a little security blanket for them that, oh, I'm supposed to be tasting this. But I think that adds to the intimidation of wine that I try so hard to break that, you know, oh my God, it says I'm supposed to taste blackberries and I don't taste blackberries. Oh, I'm so stupid. Oh, I'm so stupid. You know, and that's not what wine should be. If you can drink a glass of wine and say, this is good, 
That's all that matters. Right. You want to learn how to break it down into what the primary, secondary, and tertiary flavors are. That's wonderful. That's a different path. So explain for our listeners what the tasting notes are telling us. Are they telling us what was used to make that wine? Are they telling us what flavors ended up happening because of the chemistry? What exactly are the tasting notes telling us? So I don't know what myth I'm up to. Myth number three, four, I don't know. When you are tasting wine, if it says like a very typical flavor profile of a rosé is strawberry. Okay. Watermelon. Okay. I'm deathly allergic to strawberries. Like into the hospital, throat closes, die. Wow. I can drink all the rosé I want because there's not strawberry in the wine. So when those flavors are coming out or those aromas, those are all chemical compounds that are in that wine that are due to either the soil, the grape, or how it's fermented or stored in the barrel or stainless steel. It's like a lot of vanilla, you know, uh, or well, let's go this, let's go with California Chardonnay. (laughs) Uh So that butter that is so well known in certain California Chardonnays, that's diacetyl. That's a compound that is done because of a winemaking process, but also because of how it's stored in, in those barrels. So that's malolactic fermentation. So that's chemistry but that is the butter bomb that you're going to get. But that's not what happens with the strawberries or the blueberries or the blackberries. Those are all more chemical compounds, but those are determined because of the soil. Is it granitic soil? Is it calcareous soil? Is it you know clay soil? All of those types of soil change what that wine, what those grapes are taking in. What are the nutrients that those grapes are taking in? That's going to change that profile of those grapes. And then as a winemaker, you can manipulate it by putting it in new French oak versus neutral French oak. You're going to get, you know, that vanilla or cedar if it's new versus if it's a a used barrel. Is it Hungarian oak? Is it French oak? Is it, you know, is it American oak? All of those are those tertiary, those background things that you get on your palate when you sit down and you really like, all right, I'm really going to analyze this wine, that those are those wines. Those are those profiles. So basically how the wine is made or developed will enhance or highlight a particular flavor based on soil, based on processing, based on storage, right? Correct. Certain grape varieties are inherent to having certain profiles. So like a Cab Franc, like, okay, Cab Franc, if you taste a Cab Franc in the Loire Valley, you get bell pepper in your face, okay? That's a pyrazine. That's another chemical. But the way the soils and the way the grapes grow in the Loire Valley, they highlight the bell pepper. We do not like bell pepper in our Cab Francs. (laughs) And it's very sun-related. So we have our vines growing at a very distinct angle and we grow the leaves and we, you know, we trim and we do certain things to the vines to block those pyrazines from coming in. You know, I mean, I don't know, you might be tasting a lot of bell pepper, like I said, no, I don't no. it, but yeah, to me, this tastes very like, well, I'm just going to say full bodied, like I know what I'm talking about, but I don't. 
but it tastes delicious and it tastes like blackberry-ish to me. Okay. So blackberry is in our profile. We do say blackberry. (laughs) All right, good. So we have the same palate. You know, this explains, I think, why I've never liked French wines. I've never been a fan, you know, and I always I'm glad so glad we're having this conversation because I've always felt bad that I never liked French wine. Like everybody in the world loves French wine and they talk about it all the time. And it's like something you're supposed to love. And I'm like, give me a California wine any day. And it like kicks French wines. butt. like, I don't get why people love French wine. I'm a California wine girl. They are very different profiles. Very, very different profiles. The French wine, you know, a Bordeaux wine is dusty. It's old. It's rougher on your palate. The tannins are like, hello, here I am. Grip your tongue. We're a new world. The California, you know, that same Bordeaux blend, you could take percent for percent the same that's in a Bordeaux blend and make that in California. And it's just not going to taste the same. And personally, I think New World California wines are much more approachable to a newer wine drinker than a Bordeaux. A Bordeaux is a very, um, I don't want to say acquired taste, but it kind of is. You kind of have to get used to it because I would never drink a Bordeaux wine ever. And then I was lucky enough to have my blog win the Melissa May Award. And I was flown to Bordeaux and I spent a week there being taught everything there is about Bordeaux wine. And now I adore it. You know, I I drank a 19, you know, a, a 51 Bordeaux. These wines were incredible, but you have to learn how to do it. Mike still won't drink them. He gets mad when I buy a Bordeaux wine. He's like, what are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's maybe like sophisticated. Like maybe it's for someone who's really developed their palate and is interesting in exploring different flavors or something. It's rougher on your palate. Yeah. It takes a lot to learn that. And a new wine drinker is going to like the smoother wine. And that's why the progression usually is start with a sweet wine, move to a white wine, (laughs) move to a red wine. That's the general progression for most people. Yeah. So lately there have been a lot of people who I know who love wine, but are claiming to be allergic to it now. Can you develop an allergy to wine? Oh my God. You just almost made me spit out my wine. (laughs) Um, Okay. So here's the thing that's very, as a scientist is very, very frustrating. There's a whole thing out there of, I can't drink red wine because of the sulfites. And these people will drink white wine and say, oh, I don't have that allergy. You know, I'm allergic to the sulfites, but I can drink white wine. Well, I'm sorry. White wine has more sulfites than red wine. Secondly, if they eat dried fruit, there's sulfites in there. If they drink orange juice, oh my gosh, orange juice is out into another, you know, universe for the amount of sulfites that are in there compared to what's in wine. So what's giving you the headache? Now, let me backtrack a little bit because before people start yelling at you on the podcast or yelling at me on the podcast, there (laughs) are people who are allergic to sulfites. Okay. Yes. The people who are allergic to sulfites scientifically have been deemed within the asthma population. So it's typically people who have asthma and it's 1% of the people who have asthma are allergic to sulfites. And yes, those people have problems. 
but it's not the same problems that people who say they are allergic to uh, sulfites are. So let me clarify that. There are allergic to sulfites. The second thing is people have this new found, uh, found love with organic wines, natural wines, all of that stuff. I'm not putting anything against that because that's how these people, these winemakers want to make their wines. And if these people want to drink those wines, that's fine. But sulfur is organic. <laughs> it's an organic compound by definition. So I can spray sulfur and still claim organic. It's an organic compound. So there's, I, I think the whole sulfur thing is one of those definitions of a little bit of knowledge can get you in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who, you know, the news are sending out the little blips that they want people to hear because they know it's going to be clickbait. People are going to take, you know, click, click right. on those articles. But when you learn what's really going on, if you're getting a headache, it's probably because you're drinking too much wine and haven't hydrated enough. The The rule of thumb is a glass of wine, a glass of water. How many people do that? None. <laughs> None. <laughs> Nobody <Yeah>. does that. <laughs> Nobody yeah. does that. Water doesn't taste as good as wine. No, not at all. Not <laughs> at all. But the, the reason why people are saying, or my belief that the reason why people are blaming the red wine is they're confusing the sulfur with the tannins. And the tannins are a whole different ballgame. Tannins dry you out. Absolutely. Tannins are like, if you think of a Cabernet Sauvignon and you drink that Cab Sauv, right, along the sides of your tongues and on your gums. It just dries. It's like almost like taking a little sandpaper and gently rubbing your tongue, gently rubbing your gums. That's tannin. And we get tannin from the grape skins and the grape seed and from the the stems. Okay, That's where that tannin comes from. And certain varieties have more of it than others. And that's a drying effect. And I think that's where people start confusing, oh, I'm allergic to the sulfur. That's why it's red wine. You don't get those tannins in a white wine. And I think that's where the people like, oh, well, I get the headache. It's a red wine, whatever. The other thing is, is that I hate to say, if you buy quality wine, and that doesn't mean you have to spend $100 a bottle. If you buy quality wine, you're not going to have that reaction. You're buying wine that's on the supermarket shelf that has additional stuff in it so that they can make it the same year after year. You've got mega purple, you've got all these things, you know, a lot of these supermarket wines, they're adding chemicals into that wine because they're buying it in bulk and they need it to taste the same year after year after year. If you go onto that shelf and you buy that wine today and you go on the shelf 20 years from now, it's going to taste exactly the same. Right. So it's like a manufactured thing as opposed to like a yearly harvested thing. Correct. And you have to know what you're looking for because some supermarkets do carry quality wines. Right. You just have to know what you're looking for. Right. And what you like. There's loads of people who love those supermarket wines. That's fine. But there is a difference between the bulk wine sales and a craft wine. Sure. I mean, it's the same with uh, spirits. You know, like there's vodka, for example. I can drink like a no-name vodka and feel like I got hit by a truck or I can have like a, you know, a top shelf vodka and I feel fine the next day. So a lot of that is, I think, personal body chemistry, um, you know, responsible imbibing, (laughs) you know, drinking plenty of water. So there's a lot of factors involved. But I think the point you're making is there's no like one size fits all. Like you can't blame 
a whole class of wine based on your symptoms because there's a lot of dynamics that go into that. Absolutely. You clarified that a lot better than I did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like to think big picture. (laughs) So let's get into that a little bit. Let's say we go, you know what, before we get into this, I will tell you this. I've been at my local Rite Aid recently and I had to wait for prescription. And so I'm like browsing around and I realized I stumbled upon this giant wine section. Like, I don't know if this is California, you know, because we have a lot of vineyards out here. You cannot buy wine in New Jersey, right? Eh? No? No. Okay. So maybe it's a California thing, but I remember um, photographing the shelves and uh, sending it to my girlfriends. I go on a, like a Napa Valley wine trip every year with some girlfriends. And saying to them like, oh my gosh, I'm in Rite Aid and these are half of the vineyards we've been to. Why are they selling these wines at Rite Aid? Oh, Obviously there's like, you know, good quality wines there as well as like maybe not so quality wines there. So how do we distinguish between the two? Because, you know, this was Rite Aid, but we have this in the supermarket, even at Trader Joe's, you know, they tend to have a big variety. So how would we know which one's better? Okay. So the better is a, is a tough terminology because again, drink what you like. Okay. But the larger producers typically have tiers of wines. So I don't want to call any winery out, but so wineries have tiers, bigger wineries. So they're going to have the wines that go to the right aids that go to the supermarkets that go to wide distribution. When they're picking what fruit goes into what, this is the leftover stuff, okay? And it's a large production. Doesn't mean it's bad. It's just the lowest production. So I will call somebody out because they know, I I talk about them all the time. So J-Lor is in Paso Robles, literally down the street from us, okay? I adore J-Lor. I will go into the supermarket and I will grab a bottle of J-Lor wine for $9, which is a red label, right? And I know that that's a good wine because all of their fruit is treated exceptionally well. But that is their bottom line wine, right? That's their distribution wine. J-Lor then has the next tier up, which is their restaurant wine. And that I think is their blue label. So if you go to a restaurant and you see J-Lor on a list, it's more likely going to be the blue label or whatever that label color is. And it's a different wine tier than what you're going to get at the supermarket. Got it. And then on top of that, if you're lucky enough, like I can just walk to their tasting room. (laughs) (laughs) If you go into their tasting room, now you've got a whole different lineup. You've got wines that you will never, ever see on the market. Those are tasting room only wines. Now those for them are what they're picking as their best fruit goes into those wines. So there's like a tier A, a tier B, and a tier C for them. That doesn't mean that their tier C is bad. I will be very happy to drink their tier C wine any day. But my seller also has a lot of their tier A Got it. in there. So basically what you're saying is not J-Lore, but there are other large production wineries that have like either a really nice chicken breast filet or they have chicken nuggets. Correct. And so there's nothing wrong with chicken nuggets. Chicken nuggets, you know, really sells a lot and people like them and it's fine. But that company or that winery may also have a nicer chicken sandwich or a nicer, you know, chicken plate. Correct. Ultimately, 
If you are looking for a wine to buy and bring to a friend's house for a holiday party, I think the bottom line is you have to start tasting and see what you like. I agree. Taste stuff that you like. If you want to bring wine to a party, there's certain varieties that you're safer with. Bring a Chardonnay. Most people like a Chardonnay. You also can find what regions you like. There's things that are called cool climate or warm climate. And certain, you know, Chardonnay and Pinot are cool climates. So if you're going to go in and you know a little bit more about it, then that's where you can focus in. But if you know, you know, you just want to go in, grab a bottle and be safe and know people are going to like it, then then I would say go buy varieties. Hey, go buy varieties. Chardonnay is always safe. Pinot Gris, Pinot Grigio, kind of always safe. Okay. I think you want drier wines in today's world. You know, the, the days of white Zinfandel are gone. In my opinion, thank you. But there are people who still love white Zinfandel. I spend many an hour explaining how my rosé is not white Zinfandel. Uh, you know, my rosé is a dry rosé. It's fermented to dryness. But if you're picking a wine to go with anything, the best suggestion I can say is what type of party is it? Is it a party where people are standing around and are just pouring? Then I'd go for a Merlot. I'd go for a Chardonnay. Is it a party where you're sitting down and you're having a dinner? You're having food? I'd go with a Cab Sauv. Or of course, you know, I'd always recommend my Cab Franc. But you're really not finding Cab Franc on a supermarket. That's really not, that's not really there. So at the supermarket level, I'd say if they're sitting down for dinner, I would go with a Cab Sauv. And still that Chardonnay is going to go with that. So depending on your situation, you pick a variety or a varietal that goes with what you're going. You know, if you're just standing around and drinking, good good point of the reference is, you know what? I love a Riesling. I can just sit back and drink a Riesling without any food. And that's a good wine if you're at a party, you know, you're just drinking. And then Riesling itself can be super dry or super, super sweet. And most Rieslings, especially the German ones, have a nice little label on the back that tell you whether it's sweet or dry. But I'm going to give everybody a secret tip for knowing about how sweet any wine is. It's mostly Riesling, but a tip for any wine. The higher the alcohol, the lower the sugar. So if you pick a Riesling that is 9% alcohol, you can guess, not always true, but you can guess that's going to be a sweeter wine. If you take a Riesling that's at 13%, it's going to be a dry wine. And those are things you can see on the label because it's required to be on the it label. It's required to be on the label. So any wine, you know, you're going to see that alcohol content. And because we get alcohol, because those lovely little yeast eat that sugar, if that yeast doesn't eat all of the sugar, they die off. That alcohol that gets produced while they're eating the sugar is low. But if they can go in there and they can eat all of that sugar all the way, all the way till there's no more sugar left, that alcohol is going to be higher. Got it. Now, where is Dracaena Winery located? So we are in Paso Robles, California. And Paso Robles is considered on the Central Coast. Please do not say in the Central Coast. Okay, we are on (laughs) the Central Coast. And we are directly 
center of the state of California. So we are three hours north of LA and three hours south of San Francisco. Paso Robles is divided by east side, west side by a freeway, not a mountain range, a freeway. (laughs) So the east side tends to be warmer. The west side, because it does have the uh, ocean influence, the marine layer influence tends to be a little bit cooler. Yeah, I love Paso Robles. In fact, we were trying to get there for our anniversary this year because, you know, harvest time is October, right? And so, and, and our anniversary is late October. Ours is October 7th. Wow. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. <laughs> so we were trying to get to Paso for, for our anniversary, but long story short, my kids ended up having homecoming the weekend we were going to be able to go. So we ended up staying home. But Paso, it's like its own little wine country in the center of California. Yes. If people want to come and check it out, do you guys have a wine tasting room or how do people come and taste your wine? Okay. So we, because Mike and I both have full-time jobs on top of the winery and now as opposed to when we were doing the custom crush, now we're doing everything, right? We are the winemakers. We are doing all of this. We can't be everywhere at the same time. Right. So if they go to our website, which is www.dracinawines.com, on the right-hand side, there is a come taste with us link and they can click on that and they can schedule an appointment. And what we do is we will confirm the appointment. So depending on what the time of year it is, it may only be weekends or it may be any day of the week. So I fly back and forth between New Jersey and California. If I'm in California, it's any day of the week. Mm -hmm. If I'm not in California, it's only weekends because that's the only time that Mike can get there because we physically don't live in Paso. And what we do is we meet you and we take you out to the vineyard. We show you the vineyard so you can see the fruit that you are tasting the wine from. And depending on the weather, because Paso weather is beautiful, but it could get to be 105 in the summer. (laughs) Right. If it gets too hot, we then take you to the winery itself and we taste on the crush pad. Unlike a lot of places that take you into the tasting room and you can see the winery itself, that's a whole different license and we don't have that. So we physically can't take you into the winery, but tasting on the crush pad isn't so bad and watching the barrels if it's the right time of year go by it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like a behind the scenes look at what really goes on. So that's perfect. Right. And you know, if it's the right time of year, you can taste the fruit on the vines. We let you pick the fruit. Being the science people we are, we do force you to listen to a little bit of science of winemaking. You know, we'll pick the fruit and tell you, you know, this is not ready to pick because of this or, you know, and if it's a little colder out, we'll talk to you about how we trim the vines and prune this, you know, prune the vines and things like that. So be prepared for a little bit of science, but the best part of tasting with us, Vegas, the wine comes. So our, uh-huh. our, our wine or honor comes and tastes with you and he loves the attention that he gets. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he does. We have a a trend going. There has yet to be a person who has come tasted with us who has not taken a picture with Vegas. They've left without taking pictures of the grapes. They've left without taking pictures of us, (laughs) but they've never left without taking pictures with Vegas. Yeah, I'm following a, the winery, of course, on Instagram, and I've seen pictures of him, him, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, I've seen pictures of him, and he's beautiful, so I can see why. He's a ham. 
<laughs> now, clearly you're a wealth of knowledge, uh, not just as a winemaker, but as a, a scientist. So is this what you're talking about on your podcast? So the podcast itself, we have a couple of different things that we do. Um, one of the segments, I guess you call it, is called Allure of the Poor. And that is when I sit down with another winemaker, a sommelier, somebody else in the wine industry, and we talk full out wine. We, you know, that's what we do. Uh, there's other episodes where I do go into the actual science. I will take a topic of science of the, of the grape, like what harvest is about, and I will break that down for people. And then one of the things that I'm probably the most proud of is Winefabet Street. And Winefabet Street is something I came up with about two years ago. And think Sesame Street for wine lovers. So what it is, is every month I have a co-host, Debbie G. Aquindo, which is, um, I affectionately, we call each other Saber Sisters because we saber bottles of champagne together all the time. We, every month we take the next letter of the alphabet. And so last, or I should say this month, October, what we wrapped around, we were back to season two. So we were on the letter A. So what we did was we take, we took Aceratico, which is a Greek grape variety. And we discuss the history of the grape, the general characteristics. We give you food pairing suggestions with recipes included. And we give you if you can't remember any of that, we're going to give you five fast facts to walk away with. And then, of course, we are drinking an Aceratico while we are talking about it. And we give a little backstory on the wines that we're drinking. So that's, I think, is one of my favorite things because that's the education aspect of it. I get to share this grape variety or a grape region with people and we break it down so that it is not scary to people, you know? Right. Yeah. It's not intimidating. Right. Yeah. So if you're listening to this show today and thinking, man, I'd really like to learn more about wines, then you should definitely tune into Lori's podcast, Exploring the Wine Glass, which is available on all podcast platforms. And I'm going to have the link to her podcast in the show notes for this show. The show notes can be found wherever you're listening to this episode. It can also be found on my website, which is joseology.com. To learn more about Lori or Mike or Vegas or any of the wines that are being offered, you can go to their website, dracinawines.com, and that is spelled D-R-A-C-A-E-N-A-Wines.com. Again, I will have that in my show notes so that if you're working out right now or driving, you don't have to remember. <laughs> but um, I really hope you'll go check it out and take advantage of the offer they are offering to Josiologists. And hey, if you go to Paso and visit their winery, or if you end up tasting their wine, I would love it if you would snap a photo and then tag me on your social media at Josiology Podcast. I would love to see that. Of course, tag Lori as well at Dracino Wines on both Facebook and Instagram. Lori, thank you so much for joining me today for this beautiful bottle of wine that I am enjoying and just for sharing your expertise. I think it's so cool that you've taken your expertise and kind of pivoted to making that work with something that you love doing. To me, that's like the ultimate win. So it's really cool to be able to chat with you today and hear how you're planning on spending the rest of your life doing something that you love. Thank you so much for having me on. And, you know, 
the big thing is you can't be afraid of change and that's it. And what I tell everybody all the time is if you never step outside of your comfort zone, you don't know what you're missing. So get out there and try a different glass of wine. What's the worst case scenario? You don't like it. And then you go buy something else. That's right. Thank you for listening to Josiology. Be sure to visit Josiology.com to access the show notes and discover fantastic bonus content. To join the conversation, find us on Facebook or Instagram with username at Josiology Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.